Chapter 2 A southern wind blew steadily against the riders, but Alpin's thoughts were elsewhere. The image of Chorich standing on the path burned in his mind. The boy had been broken and left like an arrow snapped in two and cast aside. Alpin's gut wrenched for his son, but he would not permit him to enter battle, for war was hell for a man and no place for a boy. Chorich was not ready for battle, but convincing him otherwise was no simple matter. At sixteen, his reasoning was his own and words of wisdom were seldom received. Memories of Chorich tossed in Alpin's mind. His son was stubborn, but being his father, he was proud of the lad. The boy had grown up quickly. The years of innocence and questioning had passed. Gone were the days when his son would point to the moon sitting in the night sky, or at the distant mountains resting like sleeping giants under a sunrise, and ask the questions of a child. Together, he would marvel with his son as to how such things were made by a hand more magnificent than the hands of men. Alpin recalled how he would tell his children stories of the Dariadans of old, how they fought against adversity and, at times, tragedy. How he would tell of the legend of the distant Princess Scotia, of her coming to the land of Ireland with her many sons a thousand years prior, and how they carried her namesake through the centuries, bearing the name, Scots. These were the stories Alpin's father had passed down to him as a boy, and in turn, Alpin passed them on to his sons. Stories and tales kindled pride and passion, but Alpin knew that more than stories were needed to shape a young boy. Times of grueling chores and lean meals when harvests failed were a suitable means for molding and shaping a young heart. Indeed, hardship does much good, but hardship alone can quench a young heart, or any heart for that matter. As a father, Alpin knew the befitting benefits of praise were also needed for growing the heart of a lad. Alpin's thoughts remained afar. The drumming of the horse's hooves against the path produced a monotone ambience, keeping his mind on distant memories. He recalled the days spent with Droston and Chorich at the river running east of Renton, a river rich with grayling and trout. He remembered their rides, through the valleys of Dalriada, and the beauty of the countryside. His sons thrived in Dalriada's freedom, freedom found in the unbounded thrill of riding bareback hard and fast with the wind gusting against their faces. Those were times when his sons dreamed of daring adventures, conquering lands, and pretending to be kings, if only for a day. Droston rode amid the pack of men, with riders behind and in front. The sun sat overhead and shined its light down on him, his long locks swayed on his shoulders to the rhythmic motion of his horse's gait. Droston lifted in his saddle and peered above the men riding near him, searching for his father. Seeing him, he maneuvered his horse and rode alongside. He glanced at his father, lost in thought. Father! Alpin gave no response. Father, what is it? Alpin gazed at Droston with a blank expression. Father! Droston repeated. What is it? A small grin emerged on Alpin's face, his left cheek lifting higher than his right, forming a crooked smile. What is what? What has you so occupied? Droston asked. The mind is always occupied, but for now it is occupied with simple things, Alpin replied. I was thinking of Chorich, and the rest of you, you were all so young not long ago. It passes so quickly. His smile faded, and he straightened his gaze toward the distant hills. With hours remaining on the journey south, Droston emptied his mind. His thoughts wandered to the barley field where Chorich, Kenneth, and Aidan had stood early that morning. Droston already missed Chorich. The two had spent their days growing up together. 
Drosten had taught Chorich how to use a shovel as well as a sword. They had labored together in sun and rain for hours measuring in days performing their chores, including ditch digging to irrigate the barley fields and ignoble chores, too, such as digging latrines and graves. They had plowed fields and harvested crops and tended sheep, too many times to recount. But their time away from chores was far more glorious, riding horses, fishing the river, and donning wooden swords and shields in their imagined fights to the death. Drosten rarely lost, though Chorich would argue the matter if asked. Looking back, Drosten had known that Chorich was desperate to join the men in battle. For days Chorich had begged Drosten to convince their father he was old enough to fight the Britons. Drosten knew Chorich was a strong fighter, but he loved his brother too much to advocate for him to join the men. Drosten recalled Chorich's foolhardy plan a day prior. Drosten, Chorich had said, I'll hide in the stables overnight and ride out with the men in the morning. Father won't know I'm with you. Chorich, do you think father is going to ride into battle wearing a blindfold? Even if that were so, he would smell you. Drosten had responded. Chorich had not been amused, and though he admitted the plan was poor, he was determined to find a way to join the men. Drosten missed his brother. He would have enjoyed their conversations on the ride south. He would be sure to remember the events of his journey so that he could regale his brothers with suitable tales upon his return. He thought long of his family and home as he and his father rode far away from both. Large, distended clouds napped in the mid-afternoon sky above Dalriada. They were accompanied by a bright yellow sun that would soon begin its descent. Alpin and the men pressed southward. They were pensive and dour, silence held their tongues. Alpin knew such a thing was not uncommon when heading to battle. Reflection upon those most loved often filled one's thoughts in that lonely time between looking for war and finding it. Only once the madness of battle had passed, in those long hours returning home, did a man dare to carry the happy expectation of holding those awaiting him. Alpin gazed over his men, knowing the fresh scars they would soon bear, scars on their bodies and souls. How their minds would grow jaded in war, scarred from its sights, sights better left unseen. What man desires to fight a war when so much stands to be lost? But a man's motive for battle is always a fine line, cherishing the things that stand to be lost while risking one's life to protect them. Alpin knew these things. He'd lived these things. Alpin said a silent prayer for his men. By appearances, their spirits seemed ready for the days ahead. Their morale had been lifted when the Dalriadans of Cashel had joined the men of Renton the evening prior. The clan of Cashel was led by Constantine, Alpin's cousin on his father's side. Constantine was respected by his men, yet when the two clans united, the men looked to Alpin to lead. Attaining the aid of Cashel had been vital. As with any battle, numbers were needed to defeat the Britons. The Britons were fighters, yet unlike the savage Vikings, the Britons were known for their calculated attacks, uncommon among the clans. Alpin knew if the Britons were bold enough to attack the Dalriadans in the south, then they must have been confident they had the numbers to succeed. Alpin wanted, and needed, the additional men of Cashel and from elsewhere, but he would only have Dalriadan men. No others were to be trusted. When asked of the Picts, Alpin had insisted that the Dalriadans not seek their aid. He wanted nothing from the Picts, neither their men nor their aid against the Britons. In times past, the Picts had sought the allegiance of the Dalriadans when the Britons contested Pict lands in the northeast. But such unsavory alliances were temporal and unstable. The previous summer had washed away any semblance of truce with the Picts. 
A dispute over bordering Dalraedan lands with the Pict Lord, Angus, had broken all ties of diplomacy, and skirmishes had ignited between the Dalriadans and Picts. With the Briton threat now looming to the south, Alpin had settled that they would face the Britons alone. Dumbarton lay just beyond the distant hills. As the men approached, the gusting wind grew stronger, carrying an autumn chill and bringing a swath of dark clouds in the western sky. Alpin felt the cool moisture of his horses, sweat seeping through his kilt. He lifted his arm and signalled the men. Slow the horses. Dumbarton is not far ahead, Alpin said, and then he turned his gaze toward Constantine and Luag who rode beside him. We need Gura's men, yes. Constantine said, confirming more than inquiring. Yes, we need the men of Dumbarton, Alpin replied. He peered at Constantine and then at Luag. We need them, but if they turn their backs again, I will hunt them down myself. They are Dalriadans, and we'll need the additional warriors, Constantine said. Perth is not easy to forget. Gura's desertion was a coward's way out, Luag muttered. He'll contend the shortage of food forced his men to leave, Alpin replied. All of us were suffering, starving in that miserable cold, Luag said and then leaned away from his horse and spat a wad of phlegm. When an enemy attacks, a man doesn't abandon his countrymen, not with lives at stake. Gura was foolish, you are right, Luag, Alpin said. His actions were regrettable. I suppose without the men from Milton joining us, we may not be here today. Without their resupplies and their archers, we may have found our graves in Perth. The man still makes me sick, Luag said. He never should have left us. Peace, Constantine replied. You're going to have to let it go, Luag. Alpin glanced at Constantine with a subtle leeriness. He pulled the reins of his horse and craned his head back toward his men. He lifted his hand again, this time motioning them to halt. As the men slowed to a stop, Alpin continued to stare down the path behind them. He hoped he would see the slower horse-drawn carts trailing. Nothing. The carts aided in the march to Dumbarton, carrying men and supplies, but they also slowed the pace. The pace would be slower still when leaving Dumbarton with more men and supplies to haul. After several moments, the carts crested the hill and the Dalriadans from Renton and Cashel continued south toward Dumbarton. They would be expected. Greetings, shouted Gura, surrounded by a dozen men on horseback and dozens more on foot. His eyes fixed on Alpin. Gura was flanked by his son, Taran, and the other leading men of Dumbarton. They sat tall and straight, even arrogant, on their horses. Alpin, Constantine, Luag, and Drosten approached while the others watched from the distance. The four stopped ten feet from Gura's steed. Alpin surveyed the men of Dumbarton before landing his gaze upon Gura. Neither man spoke a word. The shifting swords and shields of the standing soldiers were the only sounds to be heard. Gura remained silent. He was a stout man, heavy but not obese. His dark hair was lightened by the grey that speckled his temples and beard. He had a proud demeanour, evidenced by his upright posture and dignified dress for a warrior. Though most men wore thick leather into battle, Gura's battle leather was studded with small metal beads along the arms and chest as an extra measure against the edge of a blade. Alpin broke the silence, Gura, by appearances you are ready for battle, is your heart ready as well? Gura's wince was hardly discernible. 
He had half expected a token reminder of Perth the moment he saw the Scots from the north enter his village. Still, Gura had long convinced himself that withdrawing from Alpin at Perth was the best strategy at the time. It was his departure that allowed the men of Renton to keep what little supplies remained. Alpin, worry not about the condition of my heart but rather the strength of my sword. It is my blade and my men who are needed to help stop the Britons. Tarrant spoke up and added to his father's words, Men of Renton, men of Cashel, you can see our hearts are more than eager to engage the Britons. We've been awaiting your arrival, preparing our swords and bows. We are quite glad you have finally reached Dumbarton. Taran didn't mind that his comments were smug, he liked them that way. He was a peppery young man with ice-blue eyes and fiery red hair, and he boasted a temper to match. He continued, we are eager to fight, but we did not want to leave without you. Leave without us. Son, that was your trickery at Perth, Luag replied, inflamed at the youth's prattle. Gentlemen? We are all Scots here. We share a common enemy. Let's focus on the matters at hand, Constantine insisted, searching for diplomacy. He turned his attention to Gura. We have brought over a hundred and fifty men, many on horseback. We need somewhere to bed for the night and a place for the horses. Certainly, you have gathered many men as well. Together we look to be roughly three hundred strong. You agree, Gura? Gura begrudgingly nodded in agreement. We have more than a hundred and thirty able men. We are ready to fight the Britons and defend Dumbarton. Gura paused and looked at Alpin, then continued, Alpin, my sword, and that of my son and my men, are yours. We are prepared to defend all of Dalriada. Had Gura pressed the issue of Perth, he would have lost the fight. Though his retreat at Perth had reason in the world of waging war and fighting battles, his actions were not acceptable. Moving on was a wise decision, and offering his sword to Alpin was wiser still. Gura had aspirations of leading, both his men and all of Dalriada, but he could not do so with Dalriada's high regard for Alpin. Somewhat blinded by his ambition, Gura was not so blind as to overlook Alpin's standing among the men, even his own. Though his men had followed him to, and from, Perth, withdrawing at Perth had not been well received. Some of his men had disappeared, during the retreat. Weeks later, Gura had learned that they returned to fight with Alpin and their fellow Scots. Gura's son, Taran, wasn't so ready to concede. He grew agitated with the dialogue. As the son of the Dumbarton leader, and being slightly older than Droston, Taran considered himself superior in both strength and status to Alpin's son. His youth provided vigor, yet his mind reasoned like a child, rash and impetuous. He was capable with the bow and the sword, yet his time in battle had been primarily from a distance with the archers. He had yet to encounter the rage and fury of a man wielding a sword against him. Such an encounter was often sobering, if not debilitating. And Taran could have benefited from a dose of sobriety to round the edges of his foolish pride. Taran mulled his father's concession and then attempted to regain ground. Indeed we will fight, and fight well. So know that you have our swords, but understand that our bows may shoot quickly at the Britons, he said, suggesting he and the Dumbartons would deliver the first blows to the enemy. Alpin ignored the boy. He spoke directly to Gura. I am pleased to have your swordsmen, your bowmen, and all those fighting for Dalriada. I am certain the Scots here today will again prove their cunning and courage. He continued, let's release the men for the night, then the few of us can gather to discuss the Britons. Time is passing and we must leave at dawn. 
Gura nodded. He turned his horse and rode back to his men. Drosten and Taran remained motionless on their horses, peering at one another. No words were exchanged, only the silent measuring of one another. Drosten ended the encounter with a nod and then turned his horse to follow his father. A hush settled among the men as the groups disbanded, and the sun found a home on the far side of the mountains. Darkness entered and the chill of the air dispelled the day's lingering warmth. The leaders would plan and the men would sleep on this night. Tomorrow was yet another day. A dreary rain fell and intensified the chill of the coming dawn. The men prayed for sunshine as they marched into the emerging light of the wet morning. The journey south could take four to five days, depending on the rains and the movement of the Britons. Alpin sent scouts ahead to spy and report the enemy's advances. The drizzling rains had subsided by late afternoon, though a sky of clouds remained. The road proved difficult as the poorly formed paths pooled with puddles and thick mud, encumbering the Scots' progress. Conditions over the next two days offered little improvement. Then, at dusk on the third day, the sun emerged from behind the clouds. The departure of the foul weather lifted the men's spirits, as did the sight of Milton, now sitting on the horizon. Milton would offer a good night's sleep and the addition of capable warriors. The southern Dalraedan village, known for its archers, was the last opportunity to add to the Dalraedan numbers before reaching the Britons. Cheers burst forth in Milton when Alpin and his men arrived. Lathan, the leader of the clans of Milton, greeted Alpin with an embrace. It was Lathan who'd brought reinforcements at Perth in the Dalraedan clash against the Picts. His archers had helped stave off defeat, and for that, Alpin was grateful. As the sun descended, the men settled by their campfires and prepared for a night of rest. Little was discussed concerning the days ahead. Most often the men spoke of times past. Some spoke of the woman they loved, or the children they had raised. Stories were told of battles fought and heroes remembered. The younger men, including Droston, fancied the stories often wondering if one day such stories would be told of their deeds. As the evening grew late, the fires fell dim. Luag, who'd been silent most of the evening, rose from his seat and stirred the fire with a stick he'd been whittling. He gazed across the flames and peered at Alpin. Brother, you should tell the story of your grandfather and how he cast off the Vikings, sending them away with neither booty nor pride. Alpin shook his head back and forth, dismissing the idea. Story? With so many years past, Luak, I am sure it should rather be called a tale, he replied. Besides, these men don't want to hear of wit and trickery. They want to hear of legend and law. Your years have turned you into a lout, Alpin. I'd say fire and rocks and knives make for good law. Luag chuckled and hooted to rouse the men and tempt his friend. Well then, Alpin replied, you tell the story. You stogger, tell your tale. I'll tell the tale, a voice came from somewhere in the dark. The men glanced from the fire, searching the shadows to find the mystery voice. I'll tell it, Constantine said a second time and appeared behind Luag. Drosten and the others spun on their stumps to face Constantine as he ambled from the darkness and sat on a log next to Alpin. Constantine then eased his arm to the ground and selected a stick of his own. He took a moment to inspect the slender twig and then stared into the fire as the illumination of the flickering flames danced on his brow. In days past, Constantine began, when our fathers first settled this land we now call Dalriada, the Britons were not the only threat to the Scots. 
Another threat came, not by land, but by sea. In the far northwest, an enemy entered our land and pushed their way through the West Isles. They were vile men, more ruthless than Britons or Picts. They were Vikings, Norsemen. Constantine paused and gazed at his now captive audience. The Vikings didn't stop after their destruction in the West Isles. They moved south and brought a horrific attack on Lindisfarne, decimating villages and monasteries and anyone, or anything, standing in their path. They plundered as they pleased. Our people tried to hide their relics and gold in the monasteries, believing they'd be protected from the Vikings. Constantine finished his thought and glanced across the fire at the younger men. This was rather foolish, he continued, for the Vikings had no regard for God, they had gods of their own. They burned and destroyed the monasteries and robbed them of their treasures. But make no mistake, these were not simple thieves. These were brutal men in conquest for land and slaves. Stories tell of their taking women and children by boat and carrying them back to their motherland. After Lindisfarne, they later attacked Iona and even closer to our homelands in the Isle of Skye, not far from the coast of Dalriada. So how were they stopped? A young man from Milton asked. Patience, boy, Luag said. Patience is right, Constantine began again. It was patience that stopped their advance, the patience of my grandfather and the men that fought at his side. It was my grandfather, Malcolm, who saw that he and his men were outnumbered and stood little chance against the Viking savages. The Vikings were big, husky men. They carried large double-bladed axes and could wield them as swift as a short sword. Late one evening, on a night much like tonight, my grandfather and his men snuck up on the Vikings as they sat beside their fires, boasting of their battles. They paid little attention to the shadows moving about them. My grandfather had contested the Vikings several days before, but his men suffered severely in the battle. With the handful of men that remained, he patiently waited for his moment, and on that night, he found it. He sent a handful of men to the ridge above the Viking camp. Then he and those remaining crept through a small gap in the rocks below. After moving through the rocks, he found himself twenty feet from the Viking leader, the man the Vikings called Ulrich the Large. He was a monster of a man, from what is told. What did your grandfather do? The man sitting next to Drosten asked. He waited, Constantine said. He waited until the Vikings had had their fill, he waited until they bedded down to sleep. That is when they struck. The men below, with only their knives, burst into the Viking camp and cut down Ulrich the Large and the men around him. The fighting roused the others, and all hell broke loose. The Vikings watched as Ulrich fell, and a dozen men charged my grandfather and the Scots. The Scots turned and slipped back through the gap in the rocks. As the Vikings rushed forward, the Scots on the ridge sent man-sized boulders over the edge, jarring rocks loose and raining down the wrath of God on the Vikings below. Those that escaped rushed to their boats along the shore of the camp. Did they get away, or did they come back attacking? The young man from Milton asked. Some got away. But most didn't. Remember, the Scots were enraged at the Vikings. They wanted them all dead. My grandfather and the others pursued the Vikings to the shore. And from there, they launched their arrows. Constantine pulled his stick from the campfire and stared at its glowing red tip. Their arrows were lit with fire, he said with great relish and smiled. When the arrows hit those Viking devils, their boats burst into flames, lighting them all ablaze. They killed them all. The young man asked, 
gazing at the older men for confirmation. They were smiling and smirking and nodding their heads. The young man peered back at Constantine. You're lying. Constantine grinned at the young man, you asked for a story, I am simply telling you what I was told as a boy. Luag burst out a lung full of laughter, boy, you better believe it. Every word is true. He stood and brushed off his rear, and then he peered at the young man. That should teach you. That should teach you to think long and hard before you contend with a Scot. They'll get you. One way or another, they'll get you. The men at the fire hooted and cheered. Luag continued to chuckle to himself as he stepped away and walked into the darkness to find sleep. Morning came early when the scouts returned with news. They rode into camp and quickly found Alpin. Alpin, the lead scout shouted. Alpin, standing outside his makeshift tent, lowered the bedroll he was folding and approached the two riders. What have you learned? The Britons have continued their advance. They raided and overtook both Annan and Lockerbie and have now pushed well north of Hadrian's Wall, the lead scout said, gasping to gain his breath after the hard ride. Presently, the Britons occupy the village of A, the scout continued. It seems they brought the fight to the people of A, killing all who resisted. The Britons appear to be roughly three to four hundred in number, and we saw others on the trail south of A heading north with more supplies. Their numbers could swell to five hundred with the reinforcements coming from the south. We're guessing the Britons have occupied A for a couple of weeks, based on the waste holes and paths to and from the tents and horse corral. A remained a day's journey from the Scots' present location south of Cumnock. The forest of A, a forest dense with thick pine timber, bounded the village of A to the north. With A taken, the Britons would likely not wait long before pressing north to Milton. Good work, Alpin said to the scout. Get some food and tend to your horses. We'll need your eyes and ears ahead of us again soon. Alpin dropped his bedroll and left his tent to find the others. Constantine, Alpin shouted. Find Gura, I'll get Luag and Lathan. The scouts report that the Britons are at A. We need to gather the men and head out. Constantine dropped his morning meal of boiled oats and lifted to his feet. Did they say how many? Maybe four hundred, with up to a hundred more moving north to join them. Find Gura, Alpin said, departing in a rush. He leapt over a man waking from his slumber and hurried toward the pond where others had bedded for the night. I suppose I won't be finishing breakfast, Constantine muttered to himself. The Dalraid and men set out for A. Their mission was clear, advance to A, establish positions for battle during the night, and prepare for war at daybreak. Droston's mind wandered over the peaks and valleys of his memories as he rode the path to A. The sun offered warmth to his unshaven face. The days were not easy, but it was good to be alive. He recalled the milky white skin, and soft blue eyes of his mother, Ina. She was gentle, and he missed her. Droston's horse slowed, and his attention turned to the men in front of him as the group stopped beside a small creek. The men dismounted and let their horses drink the cold running water. Droston dismounted behind them and stepped to the creek. After refreshing his steed and filling his water sack, Droston returned to his horse. There he noticed a four-and-a-half-foot bow strapped to the horse beside him, and a quiver of arrows measuring nearly three feet long. The owner of the horse was a tall man who appeared to be roughly five years older than Droston. Droston, 
Son of Alpin, Drosten introduced himself, looking up into the man's eyes. Then he extended his arm to greet the man. Les, son of Lathan, replied the tall, strapping warrior boasting the long bow and standing nearly a head taller than Drosten. He gripped Drosten's arm, I saw you with your father when the men arrived in Milton yesterday. Drosten shook his head. I'm not sure how I missed seeing you, he said, lifting his eyebrows to take in Les's expanded height. Les laughed. I was leaving as you were coming. I returned to my home for a special gift, he said, and he lifted the flap of his saddlebag, revealing two golden brown loaves of bread. My sister made these for me. Sisters make the best bread, Drosten replied with a grin. Now I know who to come to when I'm hungry. I'll share if there's any left, Les said, smiling. Drosten nodded, and then his eyes wandered to the long bow tied beside Les's saddlebag. It was much larger than the common three-foot bow. You men of Milton are known for your archery. But why do you carry such a large bow? A proud grin spread across Les's face. This is a longbow. It's called a longbow because of its length and range. The Britons have been using it for several years now, though not all of them use it well. The draw is a challenge for most men, but the return gives good distance. And the accuracy? Drosten asked. Well, you can hit an army at over 300 yards, he boasted, and with a little luck and a deadwind you can hit a horse at 200 yards, if he's standing still. Les, remind me to have you cover my back when the enemy is rushing me from a distance, Drosten said and grinned. Les gave a tooth-filled smile as he chuckled and nodded. Drosten mounted his horse and coaxed the animal forward through the creek. Drosten, son of Alpin, Les yelled, Godspeed. Drosten tugged the reins of his horse and glanced back. Godspeed, Les, son of Lathan. Not all Scots had taken to the Christ and the Father, but many had. 